So uh, for those of you who have been with us at, at either campus, we are, we're kind of trucking our way through the book of Mark. In fact, we're going to close out Mark chapter 3 today. And, and it's almost like today uh, Mark kind of ties a bow on everything he's been doing for the, for the first three chapters. And if you've been here specifically at this campus, one of the things we continually bring out is that what Mark has been doing on purpose to this church of Rome is laying out pretty systematically who Jesus is, what he's doing, how he is the fulfillment and the response to all the prophecies in the Old Testament, how Jesus is this coming Messiah that they've been longing for, how, this, how Jesus is ushering in this kingdom in a very different way than the Jews, Jews expected, but it is, it is here and it is now, and we are being called to live in the reality of it. So that's kind of, kind of the thread that's been, been going through. And then today, what Jesus does, what Mark shows us is, is, let me backtrack a little bit. What we know for the last three chapters is Jesus has kind of been systematically picking off every single thing that the Jews held dear to them, right? Whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's the law, whether it's the temple, whether it's interpretation, uh, He's just kind of slowly been not, not devalue them, devaluing them, but if anything, elevating them to, to what they were supposed to mean. Because the Old Testament lets us know that everything that happened in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of the things to come. But at, at some point uh, in, in the transition of, of time, they, they didn't see the Old Testament as a foreshadowing thing to come, but they almost idolized it all. And so they, they kind of wanted to stay stuck there. So what Jesus picks on today is the idea of family. Okay? And now, here's, here's what's kind of interesting about that. Is that, and we've talked about this here, is that a lot of the different elements in the Jewish life at this point had gotten to the point where, where things were debatable. What the kingdom would look like. How it would come in. How you, uh, how you celebrate the Sabbath. But the one thing that was, was not really debatable, that all of the different sects in Ju- Judaism agreed on was the idea of family. That was just kind of a, an accepted, we're on the same page here. We, we, we get this, this is the way family, family works. And then Jesus steps up to the plate today and says, here's the last straw I haven't picked on and let's do this. And he doesn't bash, he doesn't put down uh, the, the, the biological family, but what he does is elevate everybody who follows God to, to this idea of family, okay? So I wanted to kind of say, here's what Jesus is doing, how that's tied, because what he's doing is, let me, let me just say this about the is, uh, and we'll get into this a little more after we read, but the, the culture that this was written in, because remember, Jesus is writing to a different culture than ours, so when they heard the idea of family, they heard something different than we hear, Okay? So, so they didn't have this idea of we as a family are supposed to raise these autonomous individuals to go accomplish these goals somewhere else. But rather the individual only found their value and identity within the family. The family only found their value and identity within the tribe. The tribe only found their value and identity within the nation of Israel who found their value and identity under God the Father. And that's, that's how it worked. So they didn't strive to go do something else, but they realized, they realized what 
their role was, and that was all connected together through blood, through ethnicity. And they didn't have to go out and do their own thing to accomplish to be success if they, if they played the role they were supposed to play in succession because they believed this kingdom was coming. And when this kingdom happened, it kind of the blessings, if you will, the protection and all these would, would, would kind of flow down and properly affect... Everybody from the tribes to the family to the individual, if they just played their role right where they, right where they were, okay? And so what Jesus is doing is he is, he is uh, almost re-socializing what it looks like to be a family whose citizenship is under this new kingdom. That's, that's kind of what he's doing. I just want to hit on that now because not, I'm not really going to tie that back in later. But this is, that's the overarching deal, what's going on. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up a verse before Austin read last week. Then we're going to jump to verse 31 because they kind of tie together. And, and instead of just going word by word and explaining everything, we're going to harp on two things. We're going to focus in on two things. One, we're going to focus on, which we kind of just did a little bit, uh, the idea of family, because that adds to the depth of what Jesus is saying. And then we're going to drive into what Jesus is saying when it comes to the will of God, what it is, how it functions, how we function in it. Because I, I feel like the, the idea of the will of God is one of those very, uh, for most people, depending on especially what denomination you grow up on, is, is a very elusive out there thing that we're supposed to figure out in some mysterious way. And that's not what Jesus means at all. So let's, let's start in 21 and then we'll jump to 31 and keep going. So here's what it says in verse 21. When his family heard this, They went out to restrain him, for they said he is out of his mind. So here's the deal. Mom and dad, brother and sister, cousins, is saying our homeboy is crazy. He has lost it. We got to go find the round room and we've got to go bring him back and put him in there and lock him away because of the things he has said. Now, here's a little pop quiz to see if we've been paying attention the last, you know, what, two months, three months. What are some of the things Jesus has said that would make him appear crazy that even his whole family is like, no, nah, we got to lock this dude up. We got to put a helmet on him. Anybody? What, what are some things? Just go ahead and what are some of the things Jesus said that would make him appear crazy to his family? Huh? Don't worry about it. He's changing Sabbath rules. Now, we founded the, this, this religion on this deal. You can't, you can't mess with that. That's right. Changing the Sabbath. Anybody else? He's forgiving sins. Like, and, and wh- wh- what does that mean? If you're the one who's forgiving sins, you're claiming you're the one who got sinned against. If you mess with Brett, I can't say, hey, dude, I forgive you. Why? Because I had nothing to do with that deal. The only one who can forgive you is the one who got sinned against. And so by Jesus saying, I forgive you, he's saying, I know it looks like you did this to all these people, but you did it to me. He's claiming to be God. What else? Any, any other things? He what? Yeah, he's, he's hanging out with sinners. These are the people. Exactly. That's good. These are the people, according to Judaism, you got to, you know, arm's length. You got to keep them away. And he's, he's chilling with them and hanging, hanging out and giving very valid reasons on why. How about he, he claimed to, in his, in his actions, he claimed to be the manifestation of the foreshadowing that Moses was. Coming to set his people free from the real slavery of sin. Right? He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. He's, a cl- he's claiming to be this new king, uh, uh, releasing his people from sin. He's claiming to be the one who is ushering in this kingdom that they have been waiting for, and he's doing it in a different manner. Now, 
So it says, after hearing these things, well, these are the things that caused his family to think the dude is nuts. Because let's just, let's not be spiritual for a minute. Let's press pause and step back, okay? I want you to think of your brother, your son, or your cousin. If they started claiming these things, that they were God, that they were Jesus manifested, right? After you pick yourself off the floor from laughing so hard, and you realize that they haven't changed their tune, you're left thinking, they're really nuts, and they need some help, or this is the most arrogant narcissist I've ever met in my life. The one thing you are not left wondering is, you know, he may have a point. Why? Because you know them. You've seen their room. You know what it looks like. You, you, you're not left. You're, you, you, you have two options, not three. You're not thinking, this, you know, he, he might be onto something here. He really, he really might be. But you're thinking he's either crazy or he's arrogant. But I think what it was that took it to the level of crazy is what seemed to be the contradiction in what he was saying and the life that he lived. Because when we look through history, prior to Jesus, after Jesus, here's what we have. We cannot find anybody who made the claims that Jesus made about who he was, yet at the same time lived such a humble life poured out for the poor and broken. You, you never find that in history in any other man. What, what, what we do find, we find a lot of people who poured themselves out for the poor and broken, right? I mean, even modern, we, we might think of Gandhi. We might think of, of somebody like that. But what, what did these people never do? They never claimed to be God, right? And if anything, they said, no, we're, we're, not, we're not him. But this is how we believe we should live towards humanity. On the other side of the coin, we can go throughout history and we can find several. It's not like the claim to be God is a new claim, right? We have history. People have been doing this forever. But the one thing those people don't have is a life lived in humility poured out for the broken and poor. And here Jesus lives what looks to be a complete contradiction in ideas, which I think kind of leaves his family at the point to say, this dude's a schizo. He is nuts and he's lost it. And we, got, we, have, to, we have to remove him. Okay, so this is kind of the scene we're setting up as we get into uh, verse 31. Verse 31, okay. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent word to him. They didn't even want to show their face. They were embarrassed. They sent word to him to summon him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He answered them and said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him in a circle... He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So, okay. So Jesus is now starting to pick on that last straw. And he's using the platform of crazy to do it. Okay? Now, here's what we need to get. We need to understand that when, when Jesus said the term family, he didn't actually use the word there, but he's describing family. What his audience heard was something very different than, than what we hear. I'm not saying that if we read it and we don't understand what first century Jewish family looked like, that we're, we are wrong. What I'm saying is sometimes we miss the gravity of it. Because they understood family at a, very, at a very different level. And that's what he was communicating. So when we read it today, what we need to understand is when he's talking about family, 
I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to say which family type is better. All I'm saying is this is what Jesus was saying. This is kind of how we need to understand what he is saying about us. Okay? And so what we need to kind of look at is what the first century idea or first century structure of a family looked like. So the first thing, let's, let's notice. If, if you think of the immediate family, who's the one family member he never mentions? Father, right? Why? The father's already been established. We already know who that dude is, right? And so the, the, what we need to see is that the, the first century Jewish family was extremely patriarchal. Meaning that the father was not, not head of the family like we might think of head of the family, but he decided everything. He initiated everything, the agenda, the value, the day-to-day activities, your, uh, uh, the, way, the way you lived, the way you went about, the very identity that you received came from the father. The father was the identity of the rest of the family. Mom and dad didn't really work close together to figure out what was going to happen that day or what the vision of the family was going to or how they were going to play in the tribe, which the tribe played in Israel, which the Israel played under God. But dad determined it all. Some, some uh, extra biblical resources will say that, uh, and again, not like we think of it, but that really uh, wife, kids, cousins, whoever was underneath this, this pr- the protection, the identity, and the authority of the father was oh, it's almost like his property. He, he decided everything. And so when Jesus is referring to us as family, here's what he's saying. He's not saying, okay, we're family, but you guys are going to kind of go do your own thing and live your own lives. But rather, we are all family together under the authority, under the identity, under the agenda of the father. We don't get to determine that stuff. But this is one of, the, one of the facets of family. The other thing the family was back then was very representative. They did not have this idea of individualism like we do. In fact, you, you did not ever exist as an autonomous individual. When, when father died, the family didn't just go off and do their own thing. Usually big brother stepped up to the plate and continued what the father was already doing. So you, you didn't just have your own identity that you were looking to establish. Rather, your value in life and your identity in life was no greater or nor le- no less than who you were tied to the family. You represented the family everywhere you went. So to, to, to take it even further, for instance, if you did something good, you accomplished something. People didn't just praise you because you were nothing on your own. They praised the family. You brought glory. You brought honor to the family. If you messed up, on the other hand, it wasn't like the family's still good and you're jacked up. It was, it brought disgrace and dishonor to the entire family because you were not a person in and of yourself. You were the family. And so what would kind of, what would kind of happen there is, uh, is, and and I I don't have time to go into it, but if you listen to some of the stuff we're, we're talking about in the area of family, all of a sudden it makes some of the theology in the Bible that we think is weird just make sense. Oh, now I get that. Okay. So what would happen is if you would go off as an individual, you would do something wrong. You would sin. You would, I mean, not cut your grass. I don't know. And you would, you would bring dishonor on yourself. It brought dishonor on the family. And so what you would have to do, not to just uh, 
bring honor back to yourself, but to restore honor back to the family, is you would have to go out, whether that's pay a debt, uh, reconcile a relationship, but you have to do that. That has to be done before honor and, uh, and, and, and public persona is restored back to the family. Now, if you did something that you yourself could not repay, that you, you yourself could not reconcile for whatever reason, maybe it was a money issue, maybe it was a... Uh, just a, a physical ability issue, you couldn't do it, usually older brother would step up to the plate and say, I will take his place and I will go make it right. Okay? And by making it right, it wasn't like older brother was saying, younger brother, now you owe me. Because what matters is that honor I restore to the family. But if you did something that was horrible, that no amount of money, no amount of work could pay back, and honor would never be restored to the family, they, they had to off you, basically. They'd have to kill you. And we, we see this today in the Middle East. They're called honor killings, right? Okay? And please hear me. I'm not, I think those are horrible and they're evil. But, from, but we see it much more evil because we are so individually minded. But in the Middle East or in Eastern nations, when an honor killing would happen, is it bad? It's bad. But that individual wasn't even an individual in their minds. They only represented the family. And so, same thing, is that if this person cannot restore honor back to the family, we have to, you go back to Leviticus, and it talks about stoning somebody to bring honor back to the family, which I'm glad that's done with. Um, but but so, uh, so oftentimes, uh, or not, not oftentimes, that, that people do something that bad, they, they would get murdered. Now, all of a sudden... If you think of this representative idea in the way of family, all of a sudden, it makes perfect sense why we can say when Adam sinned, everybody sinned, right? You go tell that part of the gospel to the Eastern world, they get that. They don't even have a hard time with that at all. You tell that here in America, they're like, well, that's not fair. That, that, no, that's not fair. I didn't, I, he did it. He ate the apple, right? It makes sense why Jesus dies for everybody and everybody's just kind of, man, that's cool. They get that over there. Here we call it uh, eternal father abuse, right? We don't understand it, but that's just the way it worked. And so one of the things Jesus is saying outside of the the patriarchal uh, structure is that we all represent each other, but big brother is really the big representative for us. He's the one who stood in our place. He's the one who lived the life we should have lived but couldn't. And he's the one who stepped up to the plate when the crime we committed demanded death and said, I'll take it. Right? And this is, this is what Jesus is saying, is that the representative nature of the family is what kind of ties us all together. Then, the, then, then to go one more level, um, is that what, what we do is we, we raise up these, these individuals, right? Hopefully to be a good husband, a good wife, or what have you. We marry them off, and, they, and we, we, we send them out of the house. But what they did then is, especially if you had a son, you raised your son up to be whoever he's supposed to be, he would go get a bride, he would go get a wife, and they wouldn't go start their own little family. He brings her back underneath the covering and the protection of the father, and they just expand what the father has been doing. So if said bride has lived in an oppressive situation, has been extremely poor, has been, we see this in, in Song of Solomon, that's what's going on in Song of Solomon. Um, it, it has whatever uh, against her, whatever negative could happen in life has been going against her, um, has identified her. If said 
husband or groom takes bride, marries her. All of this past has been erased, takes her under the protection of the father. She gets a new name, a new identity, and a new inheritance. Now, this is why Paul continually calls us the bride of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus does to us. Okay? So when Jesus says, you all are my family, he is saying all of those things. And his audience gets that. His audience understands this is, this is pretty deep because none of that's supposed to even work between us if we're not blood related, if we're not ethnic Israel. So he is really stirring up some very foundational issues on what it meant to be family by being able to look at uh, the, the Samaritan, the harlot, the homeless and saying, you too, you're part of this also just as deep as anybody else's. And then he begins to redefine what it, what it means or the, or the bond that brings this family together. And he says one simple phrase. He says, doing the will of the father. Now, here, here's the deal. Uh, back in that time, when a father or a brother would, or a son would bring a bride who was other than underneath the covering of the father or when they would go out, and you can look this up, especially uh, this is described best when you read information about how the Romans looked at adoption. Remember, he's speaking to Rome. But when, they would, when a father would adopt, which is what we are, right? This is what the Bible tells us. We are do- adopted into the family. When he would adopt the, the, the child or the children into the family, here's, here's what he didn't do. He didn't say, okay, you need to do these steps... And if you do them properly, you have earned your way into the family. Rather, he is saying, I'm going to adopt you into the family. But because you're in the family, the way you prove you're in the family, the way you prove you bear my name is that you live your life this way. So what Jesus is not saying is, hey, there's a lot of us family members over here. And if you want to be in, that's cool. But you've got to do this will of the father deal. What Jesus is saying is because you have been adopted in, the proof of that or the manifestation of your sonship, of your daughtership, is in the fact that you will want to and will do the will of the Father. So this is not so much Jesus commanding them. It's kind of like we we look back at the, the commands in the Bible, especially in like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Those commands were not necessarily a to-do list. Those were a way of life. It is why Christianity adopted the name before they were called Christians as the way. There was not a list of things we had to do. There was a way we lived that proved we were Christians. Okay, that's when Jesus, when when God sets up the law in the Old Testament, that's what he's basically doing. He's setting up a way of living, not just a, a bunch of things to do. And so Jesus says that way of living is to do the will of the father. Right? So. What, what does he mean when he's talking about this, this will? And here's where I kind of want to dive in a little bit, because I don't know if you grew up like me, and if you didn't, I'm glad. But the idea of the doing the will of God was this idea that you would have to go to your knees, you would have to put all these circumstances together, maybe fill the goosebumps, maybe get a prophetic word or whatever about some future purpose your life was supposed to hold. Are you familiar with this or can I? Yeah, okay. So you're supposed to live into this one day. 
Now, the funny thing is that if this is true, that God seems to make it really hard to do. Have you ever noticed that? It's like almost if that is really the way it works, God's plan is go ahead and ignore the here and now so you can one day be there. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And so we have this idea when we read in the Bible of the word I will use of this, this ultimate purpose that our life or our family is supposed to accomplish, right? But here's what's interesting about that. In, in the New Testament, there are two words used uh, to describe the will, to define the will of God. One of those words actually means a specific purpose God might have for your family of, or your life that you are heading towards, Okay, it is used very rare. The other one is, which is what Mark is talking about, which is used over 50 times in the in the New Testament is talking about living in the here and now. Now, what's interesting about the purpose of God for your life, the, the thing that is way out here that you're supposed to live for. Never once are we told that we even need to know it. We are never told we need to search for it. We are never told we need to uh, kind of forsake our responsibilities in the here and now to get to it. If anything, we are kind of led to believe that we, may, we might not know it. And I think if we look at the way people have lived, there's a good reason. We often derail living in the, in the moment in order to be in tomorrow. But the problem with tomorrow is that it's always tomorrow. In fact, when it's talked about, It is always talked about in such a way that our responsibility to the purposes of God, this, this, whatever this fulfillment is, is to leave it alone and let him bring us there. That that's our responsibility to the purpose is to almost put it back on him if we ever figure out what it is. But the 50 times or 50 more times that the will of God is talked about, It is talking about the responsibility of living obediently to God here and now, right where you are. And not looking beyond that. And trusting by doing and committing to that will of God, that some way God will get you to that point, but he's the one who gets you to that point. It's kind of almost puts life to the idea of faith. And so what what happens where we begin to get messed up is I'm going to live missionally. I'm going to live as a missionary once I get in that neighborhood. Right? I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. I'm going to do once I acquire these possessions or this money. And that's a common thought. That's not just like weird. I mean, talk to people about living on mission and what if you talk long enough after you get past the surface, oh yes, we do need to live on mission and we're missionary people and whatever. After you get beyond that, what you find out is the reason they're not living on mission is because they're going to when they get over there, but they've got to fix here to get there. But God's idea, Mark's idea of living in the will of God is the idea to recognize, even if you don't live where you want to live, is that right where you are is where God has sent you and living in that reality. That what you have, whether it's monetarily, whether it, whatever, that what you have is just enough to do exactly what God is asking you to do here and now. You don't need any more. And this is what Mark is saying. Mark is saying the proof that we are the family of God 
It's not because we have some weird future way out there or not because we come to the same building or because we worship the same way. But the proof is, is that we as a people together in community live deeply in the here and now for God's will. Now, so what is this will that we're supposed to live in deeply here and now, not in the future with what we have, not what we might have? You guys remember, you remember the story uh, when, the ta- when the Pharisee comes to Jesus and he says, what is the, what is the greatest commandments? What are the greatest commandments? What does he say? Love God and love your neighbor. Okay, so you guys are the church folk. Let's just talk. So um, he says, love God, love your neighbor. Okay? He's not saying live your life, do what you're supposed to do, and add the component of loving God and loving your neighbor. Because remember what we said before? The commandments of God were not things you do. They were a way you lived. And here's what Jesus says. He is basically telling the Pharisee that the will of my father is that you live deeply in the here and now with what you have in such a way that all of life is geared towards a life that loves God and loves neighbor. In fact, if you remember that, that whole conversation that he has with the Pharisee, the Pharisee's asking him, what is the greatest commandment? Or, or in other translations, how do you sum up the commandments? So here's what Jesus is saying by the whole summing it up into love your neighbor and love God with everything. He's saying, even if you are checking all the dots and at the end of the day, those dots haven't led you to loving God and loving your neighbor more, you've missed it. Because the proof that you are living under the law of God is that you are living a life deeply in the here and now with what you have that is dedicated to loving God with everything you are and loving your neighbor with everything you've got. And that some way through that, being committed to that, because I I don't know about you, if, if you look at my, I don't have much more I can be committed to, right? I mean, you think about this, you got your kids and you got all this stuff. Jesus is saying, hey, it's really simple. You don't even have to worry about the future. If you worry about the future, all that is is proof you don't trust me. That's what that is. You can dress it up and say, no, I'm trying to be a good steward and get where God wants me to get. But it's just proof we don't trust him. Especially if that proof is being shown in our neglect for loving God and loving neighbor in the here and now with where we are and what we have. And so I think what Mark would be saying, and this is very, very short and simplistic, is is this, and this is, I think, our challenge today. And I think this is our challenge uh, as, as a church, especially as these new curveballs have been thrown at us. Can you imagine how different our lives would look if every decision we made, the way we did relationships, the way we spent our money, the way we spent our time, was filtered through the idea, does this help me? Does this move me closer to loving God and loving neighbor? Or does this help those around me move closer to loving God and loving neighbor? What if we really trusted God enough to believe that was all we needed to focus on and that everything else, like getting us to wherever that is, was on his shoulders? I I, I honestly think that's why, like, like Peter says in 1 Peter, I honestly think that's why um, the people of Rome, who, who actually considered us atheists, could look in at us and say, 
I don't believe what they're saying, but I've got to glorify God with what I'm seeing. Because I don't, I mean, sure, you're going to be freaked out a little bit if you're being persecuted, probably. But, but I think that they saw in the midst of everything that's going on, that these people were legitimately committed to two things. Loving God with everything they were. And all of the way they made decisions, spent their money, built relationships, did church, proved that. And that their biggest concern was not whether they were going to make up one in life, whether they're going to get one up in life, whether they were going to get the next promotion, whether they were going to meet the deadline. But their greatest concern in life was that everything that God has entrusted me with, am I using it in some way to love my neighbor? I'm telling you, when you do that, I, mean, I don't know from experience, but when you do that, I think it demands the world to look in and say, see, my imagination is that would be really hard to do, but I'm watching them do this and they're just full of this joy. They are full of this peace. They have this weird deal like some cosmic God is gonna actually take care of it all. And I think that's what Jesus was saying. I think he was just simply saying, hey, here's your job. Your job, your proof that you're part of this deal And just live in such a way that everything you do is about loving God and loving neighbor. Live that way. And if you do that, your identity, your future, your inheritance, your whatever else is going to be taken care of because you are living under the protection of the Father, which is what makes us family. Amen? Let's pray.